Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So I'll dedicate the talk tonight to all the families who are suffering right now um, in Connecticut and elsewhere after the horrible tragedy Newton um, guns are horrifying um, at my son's school you're not allowed to play with guns you're not even allowed to take like twigs and make them into guns so then all the kids get home and all they want to do is make Lego guns. <laughs> so my son wasn't allowed to have a gun until he turned nine, which happened a couple months ago. And then, so all day today I've been thinking, how can I explain to him what just happened in Newton? And maybe we'll put the cap gun away. In a way where it, it doesn't feel like he's done something wrong and he's being punished, you know. So that will be my practice tomorrow. Um, also, it's our last day here in this space. And uh, we moved into this space. I don't know when we... When did, does anybody know? I'm really bad with these dates. It's more than a year ago. About a year and a half ago, was it? Yeah. A year and four months. A year and four months, yeah. So we moved into this space a year and four months ago. And um, uh, I, I imagine that this was going to become kind of a home with more programs and um, parking and a garden and lots of plants in the window, painted really nice colors, good lights. And it just didn't turn out that way. And part of this is just the problem of when you're a sub subletter. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and you know my dream has always been for center of gravity to have a kind of permanent home um, and for us to have uh, uh, some kind of uh, new way of creating a temple in the middle of a busy uh, urban world in 2012 um, and also there's something about not having had a steady space for our, you know, seven or eight years we've been around that's actually kept us really honest and mobile and has allowed us to do so many things that I think if we had a space 
with the kind of financial situation we're in, it would have just turned us into full-time fundraisers. Um, so uh, we're moving to a new space, and I'm always excited to move to a new space. There's things that are great about the space. It has a really nice sprung wood floor um, and big windows. And there's things that are not so great about the space. Um, I don't know what they are yet. Uh, we'll have a kitchen, which is really nice, and more bathrooms. And, and um, Also, we're sub-subletting um, from the Center for Social Innovation at a really good rate. Um, we're also going to be able to have, right now, all our administration is done by Nicole in her office, which is at her kitchen table. So <laughs> she's actually going to have a proper office now, which is much better for her family life. And, um, and we're going to be able to offer more programs. Uh, I just finished filming uh, an online meditation course that goes up in January that Andrea filmed with me. Uh, we have an online pranayama course being planned. Uh, we have a whole new system of getting podcasts out faster. Uh, thank you, Ian. <laughs> um, so, uh, so we have a lot planned for the, for the coming year. Uh, we're going to bring back mindfulness for families. Uh, we're talking about creating a program, uh, a meditation for recovery. So people who have had addictions problems and are looking for meditation to kind of stabilize them for the long run. So uh, in September, we're also going to be starting a Thursday night program also uh, with Sarah and with Simone. Uh, so that's exciting. Anyways, those are the plans. So, all good medicine. Um, tonight I want to talk about medicine. Um, in the Avatamsaka Sutra, which is uh, a little more psychedelic than the Lotus Sutra, which is a really important Mahayana text, um, Towards the end, I think it's the second or third last chapter, um, there's a, a student named Sudana. And Sudana goes to the Bodhisattva Manjushri, who is the Bodhisattva of uh, compassion, and says to him that I really want to resolve dukkha. I really want to resolve suffering. And so Manjushri says, well, you should go talk to these certain people and gives him a list of 57 people that he should go talk to. So uh, Sudana goes out to find out how do you resolve um, pain. And he goes and sees a merchant, learns from a merchant, uh, the captain of a ship, a beggar, a doctor, lay women, lay men. He goes to see a prostitute. And scholars debate, uh, how much time did he spend with the prostitute? This is true. Scholars really, actually, are trying to figure that out. Um, and uh, he, so he's supposed to see these 57 people to figure out, um, how do you get free? Is anybody trying to figure this out in December? Hmm. How do I find freedom? 
And anyways, he can't figure it out. So he goes back to Manjushri and he says, I'm still suffering. How do I resolve this suffering? I want out. So it's an interesting question because it's, it's not just that he's suffering, but he's suffering about his suffering because he wants out. And uh, Manjushri says, um, show me something that isn't medicine. Show me something that isn't medicine. So Sudana leaves, and in these stories, you never know how long they go for. Like, did he go for an hour? Did he go for three years? Did he go for a month? To find out what isn't medicine. And he comes back and he says, I've looked everywhere. I've gone back to all the people that I talked to. A beggar, a prostitute, a doctor, a merchant. And I can't find anything that's not medicine. And Manjushri then says, okay, show me something that is medicine. And he looks down and he sees a blade of grass and he picks up the blade of grass. And Manjushri says, that blade of grass can kill somebody or it can bring them to life. So, this is a very famous koan in the Zen tradition, which actually comes from this story in the Avatamsaka Sutra. In the koan, it goes something like, um, medicine and disease cure each other. Everything is medicine, so what's the self? It's a little trickier. But this is a really interesting question. The, the first part of the story that I love is that Manjushri makes him see so many people. He gets sent to 57 people. And 57 people is like a really good internship. Right? You go to see 57 different gifts. People who are in their lives in 57 different ways. And then he's asked this question, what's not medicine? I think we have to be reminded of this a lot because so much of the time we're feeling uh, a great challenge in our life and we can't see it as medicine. The word dukkha uh, is always translated as suffering. And it's not a great translation, suffering. So over the years, I'm always trying to figure out new translations. For a while, it was being unsatisfied, the inability to be content, or to borrow from David Loy, who translates it as lack, or a, a sense of inadequacy. Um, uh, a translator I like very much, in something I was just paying attention to, said in passing, this is Kaz Tanahashi, uh, maybe a better way of translating dukkha in the West into English is as challenge. Uh, aging is a challenge. Being separated from what you love is a challenge. Getting what you don't want is a challenge. For some people, getting what you do want is a challenge. You don't know how to receive it. 
So everything we encounter can be medicine. That's what our life is. Our life is medicine. Wouldn't that be nice if you could go through the whole day just seeing your life through the prism of medicine? Everything that's going on is just medicine. It's easy to think about. Oh yeah, I could do that. Everything's medicine. But actually, how do you really look closely at the place where there's a challenge and to see that challenge as medicine? You see, I think a lot of the time what happens is when, when we're wounded and we don't know how to work with our wounds, we don't like other people who have the same wounds. So you see somebody who's wounded in the same way you're wounded, and then you don't like them. Has anybody ever done this before? No? Okay, I do this all the time. Um, and, but when you really start opening to your particular stuckness, to your particular pain, to your particular challenge, your way of recovery, your way of healing, then when you start to see the same pain in others, you know how to connect with them. You really know how to connect with them. I think that's what we're doing a lot of the time in community, in silence, in stillness, is we're just connecting to this wider version of ourselves to start to see how everything can be included as medicine. I actually say this every week in a different way. But I think I need to hear it every week in a different way. There's a lot of research these days and a lot of talk about empathy. If you open any psychology journal these days, there's cool graphs of brains. And underneath, there's always something about empathy. Last year was mindfulness. Now it's empathy. So if you have mindfulness and empathy together in the title of a journal piece, you probably were funded. Um, But I think that there is a mistake sometimes where we, we just connect empathy with compassion. And, you know, there are some kinds of empathy that are not necessarily compassionate. So empathy is when you just totally resonate with another person's experience. You just feel someone else's experience. So uh, in neuropsychology, the definition of empathy is the capacity to mirror someone else's pain. Does everybody know that experience? Um, But compassion is the desire to relieve somebody else of their challenge, of their stress, of their suffering, to try and make things better. From the perspective of the bodhisattva, um, our practice of compassion is a practice of seeing everything as medicine, of seeing everything as an interdependent web. And then so we're motivated to help others not because they're in pain and not because we're in pain, but just because there's pain. So what would that mean to be able to be in the world, 
to serve the places where there's pain just because there's pain in the net. As opposed to, oh, I'm helping them because I'm related to them. They're in my club. And one of the ways we open is by just sitting. By just sitting and opening to the way things are. And if you can stay in this non-dual state of being one with what's going on, compassion arises. The wish to work with the places where there's pain. And I think as our practice matures, we're working with pain not because it's inside us and not because it's in somebody we know, but just because there's pain in the net. And that net is us. That's the perspective of the bodhisattva. It's not personal. There's pain, we roll up our sleeves, we go to work. The practice of just sitting uh, has a name as a technique in uh, uh, Zen, and it's called Shikantaza. Uh, if you read Beginner's Mind, Shinru Suzuki, he talks a lot about this. Shikantaza, which is always translated as just sitting. Sounds really simple. So, you know, at Center of Gravity, there's sort of two different practices, or three practices we teach. One of them is concentration. We call shamatha, which is just getting really, really concentrated. The other practice we teach is vipassana, which is once you're concentrated, you look really closely at what you're noticing. And the other practice we do is shikantaza, which is just sit once you're stable and open up completely to what's going on. Just being yourself. So this is non-dual awareness. It's interesting where the word comes from. So shikan means just, and za means to sit. Like I'm sitting on my za-fu. So uh, sit cushion. Or my za-butan, which is a sitting on a pillow. So shikan is just, and za is to sit. And ta, you can't translate it. Ta is just a grammatical thing you do in the phrase to say that the emphasis is on the first part of the word. Okay? So shikan, za, and the ta is saying, but actually the focus is not on the sitting, it's on the shikan, on the just. Do you get the emphasis? So how do you sit and just sit. So most of us, we sit and we're like, oh, I'm just sitting. And it's like we're just watching the movie. But how do you sit and just sit without adding anything? Ah! So that's just sitting. So did you feel the non-dual? For a moment, it's like, So that's shikantaza. Just sitting. Alert, alive, responsive, creative, and quiet. <coughs> and if you can just stay with something, then loving action arises. When Bernie Glassman was here last year, he focused on this so much. 
he kept saying over and over, the way you take action is you stay with something long enough. Bearing witness. I remember saying to Bernie one time, actually, where did you get the phrase bearing witness? Because bearing witness is actually a phrase that comes, it's a Quaker phrase. And he said it was just the best way to translate shikantaza. So it was just the best way to translate just sitting was bearing witness. You just stay in something long enough and loving action arises. So this is what we're doing in our practice. Not empathy, not trying to help people, or trying to help ourselves, but actually just opening so the whole thing is medicine, which actually means you have to let go of everything to be right here. And the interesting thing about Manjushri in the story is Manjushri is saying, show me, show me something that's not medicine. Don't just tell me something, but show it to me. Letting everything go. There's a great Korean story about this. Um, did, did, did I ever tell the story the past few weeks about Rockhead? No. no? Oh, I've been thinking about it a lot lately. It's a really good story. So there's this guy named Rockhead. And actually, whenever you go to a monastery, you get a name. And he got the name Rockhead because he was really stupid. Okay. So like, He was just so dense. And every time they tried to teach him something, he just couldn't get it. He was just always like, oh. So he tried doing meditation practice. First they taught him concentration practice. And he just couldn't understand why you would want to concentrate. And maybe he was just there all the time. Right. So you know this about people who are like just really dense? They're kind of present. Because they just don't understand. They're always like, huh? And they have beginner's mind all the time. Right? So he just he couldn't learn concentration. Then they tried to teach him Vipassana. Couldn't do it. Shikantaza, no way. So the, 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 the Sangha just finally got fed up with him. And so they sent him out, and they gave him the job as gardener. So he started working as the gardener, and he was the head gardener of the monastery. And for eight years, his whole practice was just gardening. That's what he did, working in the garden. This is where my luscious backyard comes from, this, this practice. <laughs> Um, and uh, one day the teacher comes out into the garden seeing what a great job he's doing uh, and then Curious says to Rockhead Rockhead you can picture this huh says yeah. Rockhead you know one of the ways that I teach is through interviews and you never come and have an interview I think it's time eight years in the garden, come ask me a question, and that'll get us started. And so Rockhead kind of froze up. What question would I ask? So he spent another year in the garden trying to figure out what question he could ask to get a teaching, but he couldn't think of a question. Then finally one day it occurred to him, he was noticing... uh, uh, in the, in the ritual happening in the monastery that everybody's bowing to the Buddha. So he went to the teacher and he said, 
what's Buddha? It's a good question. <laughs> Have you ever wanted to ask that question? I mean, what is sitting here? What is this? What's Buddha? So the teacher uh, responds in Korean and says, mind is Buddha. But I don't speak Korean. But in Korean, the emphasis on how you say the phrase mind is Buddha uh, is really important. And Rockhead didn't hear it properly. So what Rockhead heard when the teacher said mind is Buddha is Buddha is grass slippers. <laughs> so Rockhead hears this and he's like, Whoa! <laughs> it's the most amazing thing he's ever heard. It was the deepest teaching he ever got. But the teaching obviously was a misunderstanding, but it didn't matter. So Rockhead hears this, and he just turns around and goes back into the garden. And if any of you have ever seen, there's, there's actually these Korean slippers that you wear in the garden that are, are grass, grass slippers that gardeners wear. And so he goes into the garden and he puts on his slippers and he just starts working in an inspired way in the garden. And, and he just starts chanting to himself, Buddha is grass slippers. Buddha is grass slippers. And this goes on for a few years. And then one day the teacher comes out and says, when you come in for interview and, and, and you ask a question and I give you something, you should work with that. So come back and show me. Show me your understanding that Buddha is mind. And he hears, show me how Buddha is grass slippers. And again, he's like, whoa. <laughs> so anyways, he's back working in the garden. And one day, he's chopped up some firewood, and he's carrying the firewood in his two arms. And it's a really, really big pile. And he's walking through the garden with the firewood. And then he hits a wet patch and he slips. And the firewood goes flying up in the air, bits and pieces, and he lands on his back, looking up at all the firewood spreading out, and he gets it. His slippers are off. The firewood's everywhere. And he gets it. Buddha's grass slippers. He had to just drop everything, land on his back. So he gets up and he goes straight to the teacher. And he says, I got it. I got it. The teacher is so show me. So he takes a slipper and he slams it over the teacher's head <laughs> till it breaks. And they both fall over laughing. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> So he never actually worked with mind as Buddha. <laughs> but he had the experience of everything falling away and becoming medicine. Maybe things only become medicine when we do shikantaza, when we do just sitting, when we practice bearing witness, where we can let everything fall away. I'm like this when I heard about this tragedy in Newton. The first thing I want to do is, I, I just want to write something on my Facebook wall about assault weapons. 
And that's important. I think we all have to look at those structural issues. And at the same time, to let into our hearts, when there's a tragedy so outstanding, so astonishing, so painful, that you don't know how to respond. There isn't a response yet. I remember this when uh, um, the tsunami hit Japan. I remember have this this feeling like, how do you respond to that? How do you respond? So I encourage all of us to use this mantra for our time in December, where you're going to meet family, some of you, and you're going to need to respond in a way that you didn't last year. Or are you going to sit down at the dinner table and be six years old again? Eating too much, talking too much, or being frozen and being the odd person in the corner. That's what happens to me anyways. How can you show up at the table and be with your family and allow everything to fall away, all your ideas to fall away? So it's just medicine. And be at home and don't cause harm. So how are we going to all work with this to get through December? I also encourage one way of practicing in December is not going in debt. So some of you were telling me about shopping a couple weeks ago and how you're starting to accumulate a lot on your credit cards. That's not generosity. So the last thing I want to say about medicine practice tonight is just about giving. So in the Buddhist tradition, there's three guidelines for giving. The first way that you're told to give is if you have material wealth, to give it away. Give it away so you don't have regrets. That's an important piece. So it's not idealistic, like, I'm just going to give everything away. But if you have uh, some material comfort, give some of it to somebody. There's so many ways to do that. You have something in your basement you don't use anymore. I'm looking for a stroller, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Have you been a little tight around money this year? Kind of scared? Um... Give material things. But it doesn't mean you go use your credit card to buy things to give to people. 
There's lots of ways to give. Second uh, guideline for giving from the Buddhist tradition is mostly for, for teachers and monks, which is to give teachings. And I, I think that that's in there because monks and, and, and teachers tend to not have very much material wealth. So they're really encouraged to, to, to give dharma. And that can happen in so many different ways. I thought about this last night because my flight was delayed last night. So I was supposed to fly home from Chicago last night at 6 p.m. I didn't leave till 1 a.m. And so I went to the, the counter, you know, to kind of like try and find a way to use points or something to get on an earlier flight. And, uh, but in front of me, there was, you know, 20 people in line giving the agent such a hard time. And I really thought, what could I give in this situation? Do I need to, like, I know the flight's going to leave at one. It's a long time to wait in an airport. But do I need to give these agents a really hard time? I can be okay in the airport waiting. And I don't know if that helps, but it's one less person in line hassling them. And the last way you can give is unconditional love. Unconditional love. And I'm going to add a little interpretation to that, which is how to give unconditional love conditionally. So how do you give unconditional love in conditions? I think sometimes unconditional love becomes this such an idealistic concept where we think, well, I'm not going to give that kind of love until the conditions are ideal. But how in conditional um, situation you can give love? And we all know, who, those of you who have a contemplative practice, one of the best things you can give in a loving way is your attention. Just to really do shikantaza with others. Give them your full attention. It's so powerful. We can all remember a time when someone did that to us. This is the Buddha's earliest memory, you know, is he gets taken as a little kid to an agricultural fair and he sees at the agricultural fair uh, all these animals that are being shown. Um, and so they're tied up or they've been primed for this fair. I mean, we all know what an agricultural fair is like. We can guess what it was probably like 2,000 years ago. And he's horrified. He's horrified by how animals are treated at this fair. And so his father gives him permission uh, to, to leave the area where the animals are. And so he goes to a tree and he lies down and looks up at the sky. And this is always interpreted as the Buddha's most peaceful moment. And, and I don't know if it's my psychology training, but I always see this moment as this moment where his father is present. And his dad gives him permission to be alone. And in the description of the story, he's lying there and his dad's nearby. 
And I love that little detail. This is really important for parents, right? How do you let your kid be alone? Knowing you're just here to support them, you're not on top of them. And this is the Buddha's most uh, peaceful memory that he says uh, as an adult at this this, uh, affair. So how can we give our attention in a way that turns the moment into medicine? So, um, that's all I have to say for now. What do you hear? These stories. Manjushri, Rockhead. Or what's your December like so far? My mom is a pretty typical, she, she's like the, the character of a Jewish mom. And so whenever she sees me, she like fires questions at me. And so I, sometimes I don't even get a chance to answer the question and another qu- question comes. So sometimes when I go out for a meal with her, or go visit her, I always kind of have to like put some armor on before I go in. And uh, not long ago, uh, we went out for dinner, and so I'm walking to the restaurant, like, getting ready. Okay, how am I going to answer? What are you doing? How's Karina? You know, all these questions. And uh, uh, she sits down, and uh, I'm not really looking at her because I'm, like, looking at the menu and because I'm aware that, like, as soon as I look up, I'm going to get all the questions. So um, then uh, I look up, and she doesn't ask me any questions. So I ask her, how are you? And then it turns out um, she hasn't been sleeping so well. She's really tired. Uh, She's moving. She's stressed out. So um, we had a really nice dinner together. And then at the end of the dinner, she says, it was really nice that you asked me how I was. You don't usually ask me how I am. <laughs> and I wanted to, you know, be defensive and say, well, that's because you're asking, I don't even get a chance to talk, you know. But actually, in that moment, something different happened. And I think sometimes we go into family, like, not seeing anybody. We just make them all these characters that we're complaining about all the time. So how do, how do we give our attention in a way where maybe something new can arise? And maybe it won't, but at least our, our vision changes. 
we can recast the situation just with our attitude. Yeah, like I was just thinking there, I could bring that to something that's going to happen in a week or so. I can bring that to it, that awareness. Yeah. And it's quite relaxing. Yeah. Yeah, check it out. Yeah. It's the one thing I have a challenging time bringing my practice into. It's just that mm. when the entire family is together, it's yeah. homework. <laughs> yeah. You have to speak up a little bit. I also think with family, we get kind of used to certain dynamics being set in a way. And so it can be hard to show up and to hold space for whatever changes happened in your life and to like stand your ground. Because sometimes people get a little bit uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, it's not so easy to kind of to separate yourself from that or to to be that brave. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because when, when we're different in a way, it usually ends up being like, "What is wrong?" Yeah. Or we're or or we get a little bit high about it, and we're like, "Well, I've changed." <laughs> <laughs> So the story started by, by saying that the person wanted to win dukkha for himself and went mm-hmm. on this research. And mm-hmm. The lesson was everything is medicine. Mm-hmm. I understand when we process that, yeah. that suffering yeah. is medicine. Mm-hmm. Is the end of suffering mm-hmm. by, or the freedom of suffering mm-hmm. by just sitting on suffering and therefore mm-hmm. that is medicine? Is that the is that the lesson that mm. I can end suffering by sitting in suffering? Mm. Or where does it, how do yeah. I turn suffering into medicine if everything is medicine? Or how do you end dukkha, which was the original quest of this person? Yeah, I, I mean, so there's an assumption in your question that, that there's everything that's medicine, and then there's suffering. <laughs> but, but, but Manjushri is saying that the suffering is in everything. And it's medicine. Draw, you have to draw the circle a little bigger. Yeah. So suffering is medicine. And when you say medicine is, what is medicine? The end of, the end of, of pain? Well, for, for um, Sudana, medicine was the blade of grass right there in that moment. First thing you saw in that moment. So if you go a little deeper with that teaching... The teacher is saying to him, what's medicine? Show me. And Sudana is totally, o- he's doing shikantaza, right? He's totally open. And right there, what happens? Blade of grass. It's not that a blade of grass is medicine. It's that he was right there in the moment to take hold of the blade of grass, to see the blade of grass in a new way. He's Walt Whitman. 800 years earlier. Yeah. So just sit in this medicine. No, that's an idea. 
what's medicine? So go past your idea that just sitting is medicine. So if I said, oh yeah, just sitting is medicine, and you'd say, oh, just sitting is medicine. But that's not what happened in that interaction. In that interaction, everything fell away. And in that moment, there was a blade of grass. And then, so in this moment, what is there? How do we do that when we're suffering? When we're suffering, we wouldn't notice the blade of grass. When we're suffering, we're usually just running away, shopping. For me, it's chocolate. I'm trying not to eat chocolate this week. I'm suffering like crazy. So now I'm noticing all the kind of moods I'm, I usually get into that I avoid by having chocolate. <laughs> so the whole, there's a new world that opens up. And you're staying with those moods. You're staying with them. In order to get medicine out of that suffering from lack of chocolate. No, I discovered date bowls. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joining the recovery group. Yeah. So is that like an avoidance? Tables? Is that an avoidance from the moods? Next question. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that, that stuck with me while you were talking was this idea of uh, that we don't like people who have the same problems as us. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this time of year and family and all that kind of stuff sort of brings that a little bit in for me where I feel with family it's like I have the same problems as you guys do and also it annoys me that you have them and also I see that I have I do the exact same thing and and it brings up this like it's compassion all the way down. It's like, oh, try that. Okay, so I should have some compassion, or I'd like to have compassion for myself yeah. for those very things yeah. that I find annoying in others, and yeah. also for them having those very things that are bought. Right. Like, it, and I and and maybe in the end it ends in the like, ah, ha, ha, that's funny. We're all do we yeah. all do dumb stuff, but um, then maybe sometimes it doesn't. Where it actually just feels like a how do you move forward here? I, yeah. I, I can't necessarily, just because I understand that I might do the same thing as yeah. somebody else doesn't mean that I then go, oh, well, because I do it means it's okay for you to do it. Yeah. And I'm going to just be okay with myself. So, it's, it's, I mean, it's a similar question, yeah. you know, which is, and it's a, it's a really hard one. There, there's not an answer for that. Yeah. But, but what Manjushri is saying is in the moment how do you enter the interaction so with enough attentiveness that something new is possible so who knows what that there's not like because otherwise you're going to go into your relationships with this like strategy of like it's like when people learn nonviolent communication has anybody ever done this before it's like this amazing technique, but when you first learn it, it's horrible talking to people because they like use a special way of talking to talk to you. 
and well, not that many people have done it, but if you ever, you, you know what I'm talking about. Um, where was I going with that? Oh yeah. So just in the moment, how can you stay in the moment in a way that a new possibility springs up, not rehearsed, not a strategy? Um, I don't know. I mean, the first thought that comes to mind is, you know, one thing we all have in common is aging. Why not bring that up to somebody that you always talk to about one particular thing? Oh, I'm getting a little arthritis in my wrist, you know. How's your body? Hmm? See what happens. Maybe that's a bad one. (laughs) (laughs) The point is that when we really give sustained attention, we get creative. Because there's much more space. But it's risky, because we have to throw up all those the whole fight, all the firewood, all the fuel. Doug, did you have your hand up? You know, I, I mean, I feel like I'm about to say something terrible here, but I actually don't find Christmas very difficult. Uh huh. Um, it just isn't. Yeah. For me, it's about five days of a row where I don't do. And that actually scares me because I've really used to Yeah. Yeah, I mean, don't forget that it didn't end with him picking up the grass. Then Manjushri says to him, that blade of grass can kill somebody or bring someone to life. Right? So that object, if it's just an object, it can shut things down. Or it can bring you to life. If you're there for it. Okay. Um, all of this uh, with respect to the garden. Yeah. Um, and wanting to have a garden. I actually work in a building here and I feel <clears throat> yeah. mostly complaints. Like people come to me all the time with complaints about behavior, about you know, all kinds of uh, yeah. personal issues, etc. Um, interactions with neighbors, and nice complaints. And a couple of weeks ago, I had this little girl, about five years old, come with her mother, yeah. into my office, and she said, that she wanted to contribute. She, she uh, noticed this problem about all this. What's a five-year-old have to complain about? That yeah. And she said, there aren't enough bees. There aren't enough? Bees. Bees. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, she heard about this, you know, that, that all the bees were going away. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's, that's really interesting. You know, what can I do about that? Yeah. And she said, well, you know, we can, we can plant flowers, uh-huh. you know, to bring more fruit bees back. Yeah. And I thought, this is, so she said, you know, where can you do it? So every time I saw this little girl in the hall, uh, after this point, she'd say, are you still working on bees? You know, yeah. I'm working on bees. 
but I was always brought back to this moment. <laughs> yeah. And what I found about working on the beads, and we did sort of realize you can plant flowers between plants, which yeah. is trick. Yeah. You can grow gardens between plants, and it doesn't yeah. affect any of the city improvements. So uh -huh. we've got a solution for the springtime for yeah. the garden to bring back the bees. Right. And for me, I think it was um, that turning away from the self, you know, on a, on a very um, simple but urgent problem that she drew to my attention yeah. and keeps drawing to my attention. Mm -hmm. Because every once in a while, I think, when we're going to be, you know, middle of the winter, not so much anymore. I've been lucky on it. Yeah. So we'll see more bees around here. Yeah. In the elevators. Possibly. <laughs> yeah. It's great. And it's good for you that you were able to, to meet this girl. Sometimes kids have these ideas and adults are like, oh yeah, that's good. And then that's kind of the end. Yeah, and for the parent too, I think. Yeah. Yeah. She walked during my office. Yeah. Yeah, you had on your grass slippers. <laughs> One more comment or question. Oh, I have a story. I guess it reminds me of um, when, I mean, so my sister and I, when we got engaged, yeah. I went to visit a month ago, and she said, oh, yeah. we're going wedding dress shopping. Oh, oh, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> and instant, like inside, I was like, no, no way, like, I can't even do that. <laughs> and then, um, and then, and then I just thought, you know, I'll, whatever, sure I can. Like I'll just, I'm just gonna play along and and go. And my whole family came out and took the day off work. <laughs> Every one of them took the day off work from the whole night. It was this whole big thing, and they had so much fun. And it was like the first time that I caved with them <laughs> in something that was like deeply, deeply horrifying. <laughs> and uh, I just afterwards I thought, oh, like that was such a sign for me that something about, like came from the practice. I related it to coming from the practice that like, that was possible. And it, so it was just interesting hearing the story that. It was like a way of being with my family that was not possible yeah. before practicing. Yeah. Like 10 years ago, it would have been like, no, no, no. There's no room at all. Oh. So it just made me. I was surprised that I could be that flexible. And, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, while we're revealing personal things. <laughs> so then Karina sends me a picture. I was traveling somewhere. And Karina sends me a picture of her in a wedding dress. And so I thought, oh yeah, she's out with her sisters and this is a joke. But then she sent the picture to my mom. And my mom interpreted like, oh, the wedding's happening. And, and so I said to my mom, no, 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 it's just a joke. Because Karina's just trying them on just for fun. And my mom's like, you're reading Karina all wrong. <laughs> you don't understand women. <laughs> So anyways, I let her have that point. <laughs> so um, uh, we'll finish chanting, but, but before uh, I do, um, for those of you who I won't see on the New Year's retreat, um, it's been really great uh, to be in this space with you 
and lots of you, um, your first experience of center of gravity was just in this space. Um, so maybe this has really felt like like home, like a home. And um, also, uh, our membership drive just ended, and it's been really, really wonderful that so many of you became monthly members of Center of Gravity. It's allowed us to have more administrative support. Um, it's allowed us to get Nicole out of her kitchen and to actually have proper office space um, and allowing us to run some new programs um, and... It's really, really wonderful. So, um, yes. For the new space, do you want to mention something about the doors? Oh, in the new space, there are doors, and you have to be on time. Um, yeah, uh, we're gonna we're gonna lock the door at the time that our practice starts. Okay, so it's really important you come a little bit early. Once we're sitting, the door is locked. You can't get in. For yoga, that won't be true. Okay, so let's stand up. compassion illuminate this endless field. Rachel Devino, 
age 29. Don Hawksprung, age 47. Anne-Marie Murphy, age 52. Lauren Rossell, age 29. Mary Sherlock, age 56. Victoria Soto, age 27. who are passing from this world. They have taken a great leap. The light of this world has faded for them. They have gone into a vast silence. They are borne away by the great ocean of birth and death. And Adam Lanza and Nancy Lanza who are passing away into the great ocean of birth and death. May they, together with all beings, realize the end of suffering and the complete unfolding of their way. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Thank you. Have a good evening.